Bible, if you could open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in front of you. We're going to have it projected alongside. Um, So, only one week exactly to the day left until Christmas. Who's excited this week? Anybody? I mean, I I am so pumped. As George Clinton said, I want to tear the roof off this sucker, and I I am just fired up to be here in the house of the Lord today. Um, Beautiful worship service before us today, and I I want to just thank the worship team before we move on. They They have brought the noise here this Christmas season, so thank you so much. Uh, the family meal after the service, singing Christmas songs, Christmas Eve service next week, Christmas morning service, add a couple of snowflakes and then get Tara to come back up to light a battery lit candle again, and we are golden. I mean, what a, what a precious, precious season. Um, Tara can actually take me, so I did not mean that. So, uh, I've got a question for you folks. Has anybody here ever wondered where the tradition of giving Christmas gifts started? I've heard various things. I've I've always heard that it was an expression of gratitude because Christ has given us so much to be grateful for, so therefore we in turn show gratitude to others. Um, Another thing that I've heard is that uh, it commemorates the wise men. Um, That's not bad, um, but it's not a real apples-to-apples kind of comparison. I I don't see the direct correlation between these people coming and giving something by way of worship to their God and then us in turn giving gifts to one another. It's not a logic that makes sense to me. Um, I'm not hating on Christmas presents. Just so you know, it's an honor to receive a present from somebody who took time to think about you. And I want to thank this congregation. You have been oh so generous during this year. And and we are so grateful for each of you. Even more than that, I love to give Christmas presents. Uh, I think that it's a lovely tradition, and it's no way in, in any way antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just think that if we're going to do something, we should be asking ourselves why we do it so that it doesn't become an empty ritual and then sooner or later become devoid of meaning. Um, as I was studying for this series, I read a historical paper that was written by a UMass professor on the Puritans in ancient Massachusetts, and uh, he's considered probably the scholar par excellence on Puritanical literature on the early settling of this country. And uh, he wrote a pamphlet on the Christmas traditions that the early Puritans held and where those traditions began to take shape. By accident, I stumbled upon some deep truths and gospel implications. In early pre-modern Europe, the poor did not have enough food to be able to get through the long cold winter. It was during the feudal system, um, which was a a caste system in the land, which it it consisted of lords and stewards, uh, who were stewards of the land, and serfs who worked the land for the lords. It was a complete caste system, and the lords had nothing to do with the serfs, and the serfs had nothing to do 
with the Lord. If you've ever seen Monty Python, you know what I'm talking about. This presented a problem because the Lords had all of the grain silos and the food reserves to be able to survive a harsh cold winter and the serfs did not. So during this time, there was a provision that was made that the poor could go from door to door to the wealthy and be able to uh, partake in one of the first known exchanges and breaches across the caste system of feudal Europe. And this exchange was known as vasseling in ancient pre-Germanic. So through the study of what's known as etymology, the way that words change and shape meaning over time, we see that wassailing does not have anything to do with that original definition. And there's actually no dictionaries that have been written after the 17th century that include the old definition. But when we worship, we are like those who are breaching a class system. We who are lowly in nature are literally transported before the throne of God above into a high and mighty palace and were brought before his very throne room. And in this passage, we're going to see how Jesus made it happen and we're going to see some beautiful gospel-drenched applications and implications of a lesson in wassailing. So look with me at 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. It says, we want you to know, brothers, that the grace of God has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave of themselves, first to the Lord, by the will of God to us. So as Paul opens the chapter to the Corinthians, he's talking about the Macedonian church who, unlike the story that I just told, were not rich giving to the poor. These were poor who were giving sufficiently out of their poverty to others who were poor. And Paul is eager that people would know about these guys. I love this little snapshot of Paul's pastoral heart in Christ. I've met way too many people in ministry that go around and complain about the people who have been entrusted to them by the God of the universe. And I tend to tune out whenever I hear somebody doing that kind of stuff. I mean, ironically, Paul planted the Macedonian church during his greatest season of hardship other than the season that ultimately left to his martyrdom and his untimely death. He planted them right after the biggest season of failure in his own life in Acts chapter 16 verses 1 through 8. You can read about that if you want to follow up with it. He had been the golden boy in ministry up until then. But the bubble burst on the way to Macedonia, and the golden boy tasted failure for the first time by way of three failed church plants before planting the Macedonian church and getting the Macedonian vision from God. And ironically, Paul planted the Macedonian church during this difficult time, and I'm kind of glad that he did because otherwise Paul might have seemed kind of unrelatable to a schlub like me who learns most of his lessons through failure and then tries to not repeat it over and over and over. And he's bragging on these guys in verse 1. I love that. If 
You can just hear my heart for a second, and I know this captures the heart of your other pastors and how they feel about you. Pastoring this church is not in any way a have-to. This is one of the most profound get-tos that I've ever been given in my life. Redeemer Fellowship, I need you to know from me, from your other pastors, I speak on their behalf, we love you guys. We're deeply, deeply in love with you. And we are honored that God would see fit to entrust us with a body of saints as precious as yourselves. We don't deserve it. We know that we don't deserve it. So we need to thank you so that we would never presume upon the kindness that you would allow us to be able to minister to you. Thank you, Redeemer Fellowship. Um, and I want you to check out what he's had to say about the Macedonian church. And I just feel like I can insert myself right into this passage and say this about the abundant generosity that I've watched flow from each of you. He says, For in the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of generosity on their part. So he says that they were greatly afflicted. And I'm sure that there are some aspects where they comforted each other through mutual affliction. I mean, just consider that this is the same book that begins in chapter 1 that uh, I was going to try to say it from memory, but uh, he comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we might be comfort, able to comfort those who are in any affliction with a comfort by which we ourselves have been comforted by God. Those words were still ringing true in his heart as he's writing to these precious saints. So just think of how Paul starts that letter. He's remembering that time with great fondness, which is just an act of the Spirit to be able to remember a time of affliction with great fondness. But let's check out what they did in their affliction that caused Paul to brag about them. The math does not add up in verse 2 if you tried to write it out in a mathematical equation. Paul says that their abundant joy plus their extreme poverty equal abundant generosity. God's mathematics are just so unbelievably cool. He's like, how about you give me your joy-filled, broken poverty and watch me take it and break it and turn it into abundant generosity. Isn't God so good? Amen? And then he says that they gave beyond their means. And they did not have to be coerced into that in any way. They were begging for the opportunity to be able to give in the midst of their poverty. They desired to give above and beyond so that God would be able to show his ability to take and multiply a couple of loaves and fishes and be able to feed thousands and thousands as he has been accustomed to doing and he did when he walked the earth in the flesh in the person of Jesus. So it's easy to see why Paul would be bragging about these cats. So Paul sends Titus to Corinth to take what God has been doing amongst the Macedonians and be able to take it to this other precious church family. And then after sharing the example to the Macedonia, of the Macedonians to the Corinthians, he encourages the Corinthians to follow in that example. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. He says, But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So he commends them 
that they're growing in a variety of different ways. He makes this blanket statement where he says, you are growing in all things. And then he starts to ratchet down that umbrella statement and starts to get more specific. He says that they're growing in faith. Jesus is becoming nearer and dearer by the day. They're growing in speech. They're edifying one another and speaking the gospel into each other's lives. They're growing in knowledge. The word of God and the character of Christ is becoming something that they can articulate to other people. They're growing in earnestness. They've demonstrated an ability to be able to persevere. But Paul loves them too much to allow them to grow in spiritual disciplines that are in any way divorced from the realities of everyday life. So he tells them to make sure that they are growing deeper in love. These guys must have needed the reminder to grow deeper in love. Because if you're not aware of this, this is the same people that he wrote the first book of Corinthians to. And that has the long chapter that you often hear at weddings, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So he doesn't want them to just talk about love. He's encouraging them to grow in generosity as a tangible manifestation of their love for Jesus Christ. And he's saying that the way that you pour out yourself for the sake of another is a demonstration to those who are observing the way that you claim that you love. To Paul, gospel-fueled generosity was a uh, demonstrative love uh, demonstration. So remember last week where I talked to you guys about grounding every imperative in a gospel indicative. I'm going to show you that I did not make that up or quote somebody who made that up, but he was actually being theologically honest with the gospel-centered bent that we see from cover to cover throughout Scripture. Listen, every time you hear somebody go and proclaim, you need to go and do. It must be grounded in what Jesus Christ has already come and done. I'm going to prove that to you this morning, that it's the only honest way to even be able to look at the Scriptures. If Paul had told them to be generous... Because the Corinthians, uh, because the Macedonians were generous, there wouldn't have been anything distinctly Christian about that message. Messages that go on with that kind of flow are typically very shame-based. They kind of take an Aesop's fables bent to them. Like, hey, listen to the story I'm going to tell you about this morally excellent example and now go and be morally excellent like them. The truly awful messages along those lines make it sound as if God's approval is tied up in your ability to go in and perform the way that you are instructed. And it's absolutely deplorable. It should be categorically condemned. That is not Christian preaching in any way. Even though that is less than a Christian approach to teaching the scriptures, it doesn't stop people from teaching and preaching in that manner. As a matter of fact, I would say that that type of teaching is actually normative for the preaching that takes place in Christian pulpits. How many sermons have you heard that take an approach like this? David slayed the giants in his life. Now you go out and slay the giants in your life. Be like David. Really? You want your kids to be like David? You might want to read a little bit more about his life before you instruct them to do so. 
Abraham stepped down in faith, not knowing where he was going. So therefore you go be like Abraham and step out in faith. Joseph forgave his brothers, even though they sold him into slavery. So therefore you go be like Joseph and forgive the people that have wronged you. And I can't even count how many sermons that I've said, and that was the food that was given to instruct the people of God to go out and live the Christian life. If you're sitting under preaching that says, go and be like, and the next word after that is anything but Jesus, that is not a Christian sermon. Amen? Ah. And that's not even our best approach, which I'm going to show you in a minute. I reached the end of that kind of preaching when I was sitting under the teaching of an obscure passage in Mark about Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. In the passage, Peter's mother-in-law is in bed and she's sick with a fever and Jesus comes over and he heals her. And it says right afterwards, she got up and he, she served him. So I was listening to the sermon and check out the exegetical gymnastics that Einstein pulled. He said, you see, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and when she was healed, she didn't just sit on her butt and do nothing. She got up and served Jesus. Likewise, Jesus does not heal us so we could sit around on our butts. He heals us so that we could get up and serve Jesus. And I can still remember the utter taste of disdain that filled my mouth when I was sitting under that passage. I was sitting there thinking, if the way that you preached is correct, then you don't have to have a merciful and benevolent Jesus in any way. You just have to have a Jesus that was hungry and didn't feel like getting up to make himself something to eat. So he's like, hey, babe, you're healed. Go make me a sandwich. And that's not Christian preaching. Really? That's what you want to instruct people with from the word of God? That's what you want people to get out of the scriptures? It makes it sound like if we were to stay seated and try to recover after sickness, that Jesus would have been disappointed and his purposes in healing her would have been thwarted. God really used that sermon in my life to teach me how to never preach a sermon to anybody else. If you don't ground your imperatives in the indicatives of what Christ has done, then you're not even preaching the gospel. And you want proof? Look here at verse 9, and it's an airtight case. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. The reason that Paul calls him to become poor so that others might become rich is because Jesus first set the example of being rich and becoming poor so that the poor through Christ would be able to become rich. I mean, check out Paul's approach. It's beautiful. It's not the Corinthians have done or the Macedonians have done, so therefore go and do. It's not even Christ has done, so therefore go and do. It's Christ has accomplished so therefore, you are now free to go and walk in that which Christ has accomplished on your behalf because that has been transmuted to you through the gospel exchange when you put your faith in him. How awesome is that? He has purchased you from the realm of poverty. 
He has made you who were once poor to now be rich through his miraculous grace. So therefore, stop living lives as if you're poverty-stricken and realize that you have been seated in thrones above and you are now a child of the very King of Kings. Amen? And that took place on Christmas morning. And that gives me chills to think about. I mean, literally, I can feel the chills. It's so awesome. Christ was the one who was in his heavenly father's perfect palace above. Yet he left all of that, and the rich one became truly poor on our behalf, so that the poor who were born, I mean, he was so poor that he was born to just a couple of peasants. He was so poor that he was born in a barn in the middle of a field. He was so poor that his crib was a feeding trough for animals. He was so poor that royalty ignored his birth. And even when asked about it point blank, they're like, yeah, go and check it out and tell us what it was like. He was so poor that the equally poor shepherds were the only ones who made hospital visits for his birth of the king of the entire universe. I would love to take this precious verse that was fulfilled in the impoverished hypostatic union of our Lord Jesus Christ and show you the depths of the love that can be found in the manger scene on Christmas. So just a couple of things. He became poor so that we might, through his poverty, become rich. That's the conclusion that Paul reaches in verse 9. It's directly out of the verse. I didn't do any massaging of that to be able to make it applicable to you. We were the ones who were truly poor, which is ironic because people often give appearances to be able to try and look like they're wealthy rather than acknowledge their true poverty, even though it says right in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are poor, for they shall be called the children of God. God didn't care what man thought. He wanted to rescue a spiritually impoverished people so that according to Ephesians chapter 1, we might spend all of eternity exploring the riches of his glorious mercy that is ours in Christ Jesus. How beautiful is that? He became nothing so that we might, through his becoming nothing, become everything. Listen, he is everything. He's Lord of all. He, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all his. But he was able to pour himself out unto nothingness, so that in doing so, we who were truly nothing would be able to become everything in Christ. As Paul says earlier in the same book, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that through him we might become the righteousness of God. We also see that he became empty so that we might become full. That's what we looked at last week in the passage. That's the kenosis that you see in Scripture. He emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant so that through that emptying, he might be able to rescue us so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he, in fact, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? And the fourth thing we see is he became lowly so that you could become children of God. Bang! That's the Christmas story. The high and mighty Son of God took on the form of the lowliest of His creation that rejected Him, spit upon Him, and just completely categorically denied Him when He came so that the Creator would be able to come and 
rescue to himself a people who would become a ransomed children of the king, which has led to one of my all-time favorite refrains in a Christmas song, this is war, and born tonight, the word of flesh, the Lord of light, the son of God, the lowborn king, whom demons fear and angels sing. That's the Christmas story. So let me give you a couple of application points from what we see through Jesus' poverty to be able to give wealth to a people who had only known poverty. First, very simple. It's the application you saw the Macedonians. It's what Paul is really just blown away as he looks at the Macedonians. Worship. When you consider him who is everything, who became nothing, because he was lovesick for you, does that lead you to worship? That's a real question. I, w- I, want all, I want to be able to see in the back of your skulls right now. When you consider him who was everything, who became nothing because he was so lovesick for you, does that just lead you to a hallelujah in your spirit? Anybody? Amen. Thank you. Nancy, you are a gem, sister. I love you. Number two, grow in thankfulness. And if it's thankfulness that was born of the Spirit, watch that thankfulness pave the way to a life of generosity. When you realize that Christ has given you everything you need, it has a way of taking the things that you want and putting them into perspective. When you're growing in thankfulness, you will be able to demonstrate it by being a thankful person who now lives a life of generosity in Christ. We see that pretty clear in verse 7. That's what he's saying. He's saying, if you really get this, show it. Demonstrate that love by being a generous people to other people. It's beautiful. Let thankfulness overflow into generosity this Christmas. Number three, as Christ has done, go and do likewise. Because he accomplished all that we needed to make you who were poor now to be rich through his matchless and glorious grace. So now you who are rich don't have to live in poverty any longer. And man, I'm not talking about the bills in your wallet. I'm not talking about the size of your bank account. I'm not talking about if you're rolling in Lexuses and if you got diamonds on your wrist. That ain't it. I'm saying you who are spiritually impoverished have become rich through the matchless grace of Jesus. So live as a rich kid not as one who has been impoverished. And the way that you do that, ironically, is to maintain poverty of spirit so that you may continue to know his richness as we become children of God, according to Matthew 5.8. And last, delight in him this Christmas who has become poor so that you may become rich. Look, delight is... I kind of I fudged my application points here. Delight... It's just another way of saying worship, isn't it? The only difference between delight and worship is delight presupposes that you're going to have a deep abiding joy in your worship of our Savior. And that's what we're going to be talking about this Christmas morning. We're just going to horseshoe up the seats and we're just going to put a hot mic 
right in the middle there so we can testify, whoever wants to come up and testify of the joy that is ours through Jesus Christ. And we might be able to delight in Him. So as we close, may we delight in Him as we close out and come to His table. And may we delight in Him as we worship Him in song. And may we delight in Him as we have fellowship with the saints of Jesus Christ and partake in the breaking of bread. And may we delight in Him as we consider these truths that are ours in Christ Jesus this Christmas season. Amen? Amen. Jesus, thank You so much that You were poor on our behalf, even though You've only known richness. And Lord, thank You that by emptying out Your richness and walking in poverty. We who were only knowledgeable about poverty could become rich through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.